I'll go ahead and get us started. Um, I sent around a handout um, about an hour ago, and it has some excerpts that we'll work with today. My, my general plan is to transition us from um, our previous two or three weeks worth of discussion around tools for conviviality, especially de-schooling society before that. And while the the book that will kind of be at the center of our discussion today, um, it's, it's alternatively known as uh, Medical Nemesis, which was its original title, and then it was republished later as Limits to Medicine. Uh, so I might um, unconsciously sort of alternate between those two titles. That, that book belongs to the same uh, period as pamphleteering period, as Illich called it, um, and takes its place along with de-schooling and tools for conviviality and energy and equity, uh, which I had intended to maybe talk a little bit about today, but I've, uh, I thought that maybe that was a bit too ambitious. Um, but it, it also, in a sense, kind of transitions us to some of Illich's later concerns or, or maybe even sort of closes out this period. Uh, so, so we'll be will be a, the theme will be transitions today. Last week, and I think every week we talk, anytime I talk about Illich, um, there's always this question about, okay, so what do we do, right? What does this mean? What is he asking us to do? Um, what is the application of this uh, to our present circumstances? Uh, how feasible is this, et cetera, et cetera. And uh, there were a couple of things actually that came to my mind at the tail end of our last class after we had, we were done actually. And, um, and I remembered how Illich described his relationship to the university, um, later, later in his career. So after this pamphleteering phase, he becomes a kind of itinerant scholar and he spends a lot of time, um, in universities, both in, in Germany, um, but also in the United States, uh, notably at Penn State. And, uh, he, so he teaches, right? He teaches in the establishment, as it were, right? In the university. Uh, but he he thinks of it as, and this is his phrase, milking the sacred cow. Uh, and he did it largely, he did it on his own terms. And of course, he, he was able to do that, right? This is um, not something that the, the average uh, adjunct professor is going to be able to sort of dictate, but he was able to do this on his own terms and never took a, a kind of permanent position and then viewed his work as a way of sustaining what he was really interested in, uh, which were these seminars and conversations that uh, he would hold uh, independently uh, to some degree of his work at the university. And so there's a kind of relationship that, um, you know, the, the question of compromise, I think, came up. And, and again, I'm not even uh, sure I would phrase it in terms of compromise, um, but that there is a, a mode of relating to these existing structures um, that maybe we might say is on the model of uh, how Jesus described that we ought to be wise as serpents, right? Innocent as doves, but wise as serpents. Uh, and maybe Illich modeled this to some degree. I'm reminded of, of two other um, sort of anecdotes, uh, a, a little on the humorous side, perhaps, but um, both may be examples of this. Uh, one of them is his um, uh, con- convincing, I'm not sure who it was exactly that he convinced, but he managed to get the wine that he bought for his gatherings discounted a, a, as a kind of expense on his taxes. Um, and, you know, and, and so there's that. And then uh, his convincing a, uh, today we would call him a TSA agent, but somebody at the airport customs agent that um, the non-refined heroin he was carrying to control his pain uh, should not be considered an, an illegal drug. And, and so in both of these cases, 
it's almost a way of kind of working the system or navigating the system. Um, I'm not sure if that is much help practically to us either, uh, but it, it does suggest that it's it's not a kind of complete capitulation or else you're, you're off living uh, a hermit lifestyle in, in, in order to remain kind of pure from the contaminations of uh, industrial society, uh, but that there is a, um, a way of navigating these that I think maybe ought to be our, our aim. So there, there are those things that came to my mind. And then I, I wanted to also, uh, these first three quotes are all sort of from a section in uh, David Cayley's recent, um, very recent, just published this past month, this um, intellectual biography of Ivan Illich. And in, in there, he uh, cites a line that uh, Illich's friend, Gustavo Esteva, who uh, was an activist and scholar in Mexico, is, is presently an activist and scholar in Mexico, um, would quote, and it was a saying uh, that he would attribute to the Zapatista movement um, in Mexico. And, and it was this, to change the world is very difficult perhaps impossible. What seems feasible is to create a whole new world. Now, I, I want chiefly to just kind of present that to you. It has a kind of conish quality to it, although maybe not quite to that to that extreme. Con- I think it's worth contemplation, but it does suggest, it, it, it was provocative in the best sense uh, to me, right? It, uh, we do talk about trying to change the world, and then we begin to think of all of these sort of challenges that arise, uh, but to imagine a whole new world, right? Um, in some respects, may be the better frame of mind. Um, at any rate, uh, Cayley sees this as being, to some degree, descriptive of, of, of what Illich was after. So the next quote from Cayley, Illich advocated de-schooling, not school reform. He called for, uh, this is a quote from Illich, alternatives to economics rather than alternative economics. He encouraged the cultivation of a virtue of enoughness, and ask people to explore the ways in which they might be happier with less rather than more. He tried to redraw the political map rather than accommodate himself to the existing diagram of political choices. And, and Cayley sees the, this gloss on his career uh, as being exemplified by this idea of trying to imagine what a, a new configuration uh, of the social order might look like. But then Illich also, or excuse me, Cayley also notes this, um, Speaking of, of, to the question of whether Illich was a revolutionary, um, Illich has a, or excuse me, Cayley has a chapter on this. And, and towards the end, he writes, his, his was a revolution in awareness. That was why he made de-schooling its precondition. And to that extent, it is ongoing, right? This revolution in awareness is ongoing. Every time someone perceives abundance where before they had seen only scarcity, or finds opportunity in place of an institutionally defined problem, Illich's revolution has occurred. As, well, that's a typo on my part. As for the hope that a political inversion would take place, I think Illich abandoned that very quickly. And so if you recall, Tools for Conviality does have this almost kind of manifesto-like quality calling for the, the seizing of this moment as a moment of revolutionary possibility, um, even politically speaking. And Illich, uh, Cayley here says that, that he thinks that Illich abandoned that very quickly. The institutions he had hoped to revolutionize had proven less tractable and more deeply rooted than he had at first imagined. What had made them so impervious to criticism, he concluded, was the certainties, quote unquote, on which they were founded. Now, two elements of this, um, of these few lines here. The, the first is this 
um, idea of the, the ongoing revolution in awareness, uh, that we, we need not think that what we're looking for is exclusively a, an incursion of the political order, uh, or an immediate tr- transition to, you know, convivial modes of production, et cetera. Uh, but rather that, that what is required is a revolution in awareness that is sort of an ongoing work to in our own life, in our own experience, in our own community, among our friends, in our neighborhoods, uh, to reverse these ways of seeing the world, of perceiving the world, uh, that Illich targeted in his earlier works. And, and in this sense, it, it, it seems to me as something that we can do, that it injects a kind of hope rather than despair, framing it this way. Um, and so I want to offer that to you. But then also, to mention here this last part, the second sentence, a uh, two or three sentences of that um, paragraph, that there there was a sense in which Illich thought that at the end of his pamphleteering period, he needed to come to a better understanding of what was undergirding these institutions that he had criticized at sort of the, the structural level. And this is where he turns to an exploration of the certainties, the premises, the assumptions on which they were founded. Uh, and this becomes um, sort of his uh, his scholarly focus for the next several years from the late 70s into the early 80s. And so um, I'll say more about that after we conclude our discussion of limits to medicine. Uh, but I wanted to move then. Well, let me pause. And actually, let me just ask if, if there are any questions or comments um, that arise for you from that, uh, from those observations. I'm not sure if they help or clarify or muddle, but I'll, I'll certainly pause for any, any conversation along those lines. All right. Well, then I'll press forward. So the next um, thing I want to do here is, is talk a little bit about medical nemesis. Um, medical nemesis or limits to medicine uh, is the largest uh, and most scholarly, the longest and most scholarly of the works that Illich produced during this time period. Uh, it's full of footnotes. It um, is three times as long as, uh, conviv- or, excuse me, um, the schooling society, and so it's a it's a notable work, and it did um, it did gain some attention even in the medical journals at the time. Uh, at the heart of it is this idea that medicine, like transportation. Uh, like education, was another modern institution that had passed through the second threshold into counterproductivity. Uh, and, and the idea of nemesis, drawing again on the on Greek mythology, uh, the idea of nemesis is the, the god who um, visits retribution on human beings who are guilty of, of hubris, right, of, of refusing to acknowledge um, the limits appropriate to their status or their situation. And it's another way of naming this idea of counterproductivity. Um, Illich, uh, in this book, well, actually, let me, let me pause because I wanted to throw another sort of allusion into the mix at this point. Um, that was on my mind as I kind of prepared for this particular class. And, and, and that's to the biblical story of the Tower of Babel, uh, which, which seems to me to be, uh, increasingly relevant, right? I, I come back to it early, you know, again and again, in my own thinking, because what it, it offers to us is the image of humanity taking it upon itself to make its way in the world, trusting to its own ingenuity, 
to its own technical know-how in order to secure itself uh, against the troubles of this world, right? Um, and, and of course, to do that at the expense of refusing the gift of grace, right? So these are the, the, the two ways are opposed. Um, in, in the narrative of Genesis, I think what we, what we see is a Tower of Babel sort of opposed to, um, the, the staircase provided by God in Jacob's dream that allows him to see an ascent to heaven, linking heaven and earth, right? And so there's the gift of grace on the one hand, and then there is the, the effort by man, uh, based on his own resources, his own ingenuity, his technical prowess, we might say, to build a world that allows him to secure himself against the human condition, as it were. And so it, it's an interest. And of course, the end result of that, right, is its collapse, its judgment, its curse. Um, and so that that's also, I think, an image that um, would do us a, a lot of good to, to contemplate. And, and even to think about, um, the techno-scientific project of modernity, uh, as a, 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 a sort of an attempt to do the whole Tower of Babel thing over again, right? To, to make our way in this world, relying solely upon our own capacities and our own reason, uh, by way of control, we might say, and mastery, rather than by, uh, receiving what is essentially a gift, um, and, and this will tie even more specifically, I think, into the conversation on the limits of medicine, especially as we move from um, Illich's critique of itrogenesis, which I'll talk about in just a moment, into what Illich is trying to defend. Right? So the critique is almost always is attached to something he's defending or something he's trying to preserve. Uh, and it, it, we might think of it as what he, he calls the art of suffering or the art of death. Uh, of dying. And so we'll come to that in, in just a moment. But let me come back to this idea of itrogenesis. It's not a term that Illich, uh, from what I understand, from what I can tell, it's not a term that he coined, but it's certainly one that he uh, popularized to, to a large degree. And it refers to, um, in the simplest sense, it simply refers to, to medically induced uh, disease or illness or suffering, right? So it's a kind of uh, suffering that the medical profession, one way or another, um, generates. And now, uh, Illich divided it into three different categories. Um, clinical itrogenesis, which is in its most literal sense, simply, um, the harm that the profession itself does to health. Um, I, I, vivid, I had a, a knee surgery when I was younger, uh, to repair an ACL. And I, and I vividly remember, uh, right before surgery, uh, the surgeon came in, um, honestly, looking rather disheveled and not a bit hung a little bit hung over but in any case he um he asked me what knee uh, i was you know having repaired and i told him and i pointed to it and then he took a big black marker and, and drew an x over the other one and so I, at that moment I, it occurred to me what led to that becoming best practices right um what were the series of events that generated this as a as a, as a, a you know a, a good thing for a doctor to do and and of course what it suggests is that there are there are by now countless cases we hear about them every once in a while of um, errors conducted uh, medical errors in the hospitals that there there's a high percentage of people who who get more sick by coming to the hospital seeking care um, and so this this kind of thing that now is, is to some degree I think taken for granted as as a reality um, I think when Illich is writing was a, a relatively novel sort of idea and, and the medical profession I think still was operating under this sort of halo of 
of uh, objectivity and, and scientific uh, prowess. Um, but so, so one of the first things that, that Illich does in this book is to highlight the, the, the clinical cases of itrogenesis, um, the, the way in which x-rays generated radiation poisoner and over-reliance on x-rays, for example, and then countless sort of other errors. I, um, I, I pulled a, a, a tweet across my, uh, timeline a little bit ago. I'll, I'll share it here briefly. Uh, it's from an, um, an epidemiologist in, at Yale. And he was commenting uh, on this. This is his comment. The idea that any drug is better than no drug at all is now the reigning view, apparently, at, U- at the US FDA, that ineffective drugs on the market are better than no drugs on the market. It's totally bonkers. Right, so I, I, this is the sort of thing that I think, um, you know, when I thought that, I, I immediately, of course, thought of Village, right, that, that we're sort of addicted to institutionalized medical care. And, and of course, the you know, the pharmaceutical industry becomes a huge part of this story, um, in, you know, in the preceding decades. But so that's the one, and I think the easiest, uh, sort of almost obvious, uh, way in which, you know, medicine becomes problematic. But again, it's only one of the three, um, kinds of itrogenesis that, um, that Illich identified. The other, the second is social, social itrogenesis. And I gave you a quote here where Illich kind of explains what this means and I'll, I'll read this for us. He says, social itrogenesis obtains when medical bureaucracy creates ill health by increasing stress, by multiplying disabling dependence, by generating painful new needs, by lowering the levels of tolerance for discomfort and pain, by reducing the leeway that people are want, that should be want, not won't, uh, unfortunate autocorrect there, uh, to concede to an individual when he suffers and by abolishing the right to self-care. Social itrogenesis is at work when healthcare is turned into a standardized item, a staple, when home becomes inhospitable to birth, sickness, and death, when the language in which people can experience their bodies is turned into bureaucratic gobbledygook, or when suffering, mourning, and healing outside the patient role are labeled a form of deviance. Right, so this is something a little broader than just the idea that sometimes um, medicine, in, in, through medical errors, doctors uh, harm us or, or promote ill health. This, again, is very much in line with the, the kind of dependence that he crit- criticized in uh, tools for, or excuse me, in deschooling society, where the profession sort of monopolizes for itself everything that sort of falls under the idea uh, of health, an idea, a, a term which Illich later also came to um, kind of disavow to some respect, but but I'll use it here, health. Um, and and so it it touches on various things, right? This idea of um, increased stress the way we understand our body, the way we sort of respond to our own body, the uh, the inability to sort of um, declare ourselves sick. I, I should have found that quote. I did. I think it's um, in an earlier book, but it talks about how we have lost the ability to declare ourselves uh, ill because we require kind of a medical certification, right? A doctor has to sort of certify that we in fact have um, an official illness and to diagnose it appropriately. Um, and there's a, there is a, um, you know, great line here about the role of doctors. I didn't put it on this sheet, but it's the role of doctors, the medical profession 
as a kind of um of, of modern priesthood, right? That sort of declares the parameters of, of what is good and bad, of what's appropriate treatment and not, uh, what counts as a sickness and what doesn't. Um, and, and certainly that sort of dependence, that bowing before um, the medical profession and, and the loss of confidence in the individual to sort of feel his own or her own body uh, and make sense of what is happening to them and respond to it um, with something other than um, a sort of reflexive, a reflexive demand for medical care or medication. Uh, this is, I think, what, what uh, Illichir is trying to describe as social hydrogenesis. Um, the, the experience of the body becomes really important. And in fact, um, reading this, it, it makes me realize Illichir revisited um, this book for, I think it was a, either the 10th or the 12th anniversary of its publishing in the British medical journal Lancet. And he, he wrote, uh, what became an introduction to the second edition later on. And, and he actually criticized his own work, you know, I, I identified areas in which he had not, you know, seen clearly enough or, or hadn't been critical enough. Um, and one of the things that he notes at that time, uh, it, as he begins to turn his attention to questions of perception and sort of the history of how we experience the body, um, that the, the, what had interested him and uh, it had become not just what we do to our bodies uh, through our medical technology, but rather how our use of medical technologies reshape what we think a body is, right? how we perceive or, or, or understand our own bodies. Um, he somewhere talks about how in, in one of his medicine, he talks about how, you know, we have sort of become our chart, right? We, uh, for the, for the doctor, um, we don't exist anymore in sort of our individuality. We, we simply become a chart that is kept right from birth to death. Um, and that chart, that abstraction becomes who we are. We understand ourselves in this way or, or certainly the medical profession, uh, except for, of course, um, exceptions within it. Nonetheless, the, the, um, the tendency, the temptation is to understand the body by reducing it to these signals that show up in a ever-growing array of medical tests. Uh, and so it, it, it involves uh, a perception of the body. And then I, we'll talk more about this feature than, than the others, but it, it reframes what it means to suffer. Um, but here, and, and, and that falls more under the idea of cultural hydrogenesis, but here he does refer to it, and he he does talk chiefly about how things like birth and mourning and healing or specifically birth sickness and death, excuse me, are displaced um, from the home and located in the hospital, right? Um, I think that there's, I, you know, I have no great expertise in this area, uh, but my impression is that there's been some turn away from this, right, of recognizing the value of of a death that happens amongst family at home. Um, I'm not sure how to think about um um, something like hospice care, but it seems like it's a, it's a move to bring these things back within the confines of the home and to remove it from the, the setting of the hospital. The pandemic, of course, has reshuffled all of that in, in, in really tragic ways of, uh, over the last year and complicated these issues. But, um, but sir, and, and there is, you know, some of you may know people who have had home births, right? There is a, a, a growing movement uh, to bring even, you know, the, the process of birth back into the home. So, so I think that there has been a, a, a growing resistance to 
um, the kind of trends that, that Illich was identifying here. Um, but certainly that this is part of his critique. And then the, the last step of this, uh, the last aspect of itrogenesis is cultural itrogenesis. And I'll describe this and then we can pause to, um, um, to talk about these different things. Um, he says this sets in when the medical enterprise saps the will of the people of people to suffer their reality. Um, this is an, uh, an interesting line and it, it's flushed out, of course. One example of the way in which it's flushed out, um, is in this other passage where he talks about how the major religions reinforce resignation to misfortune and offer a rationale, a style, which is a really interesting choice of word plays very much into, into what Illich is trying to communicate here. A rationale, a style, and a community setting in which suffering can become a dignified performance. The opportunities offered by the acceptance of suffering can be differently explained in each of the great traditions as karma accumulated through past incarnations, as an invitation to Islam, the surrender to God, or as an opportunity for closer association with the Savior on the cross. Now, Illich throughout, and, and, and the, those who have commented on, on this work in particular, will, will be quick to note that to modern ears, this will all sound as just some variety of, um, of masochism, right? Of a, of a desire for suffering, um, that is irrational or superstitious. Um, I, you know, I do, I do wonder the degree to which this has to be anchored in a kind of re- religious perspective. Um, it is always underlying, I think, Illich's understanding of things, even when it's not explicit in his text. And, and the last quote, you know, that, that I'll, I'll point you to here will exemplify that. Um, but nonetheless, right, we, I think we have a sense here of, of what Illich is driving at. We don't experience suffering, um, as even the Christian tradition invites us to see it as an, an occasion for sanctification, um, for, um, submitting to the will of God, um, receiving it as a gift. Um, these are all things that we are, in, that, you know, in the New Testament, we are encouraged to do. Now, I, I would agree that there's probably a fine line that we need to talk about here, right? And Illich will say, right, seeking suffering for suffering's sake, right? Um, or, or working to, you know, make our suffering worse, right? These are, these are not the things that he is talking about, right? But, but I think he is pointing to the collapse of our cultural capacity to respond to suffering. So for example, in the next, um, gloss, this, and this is Kaylee sort of glossing these ideas. He says contemporary medicine, on the other hand, makes suffering an abomination, right? Simply something to be at all times refused, mitigated, and, and done away with, even while sometimes increasing it. It does so by declaring war against all suffering and thereby turning suffering into a sign of failure or of a problem not yet solved. There's a movement, um, it's, uh, and, and has, uh, you know, you know, reputable backers and proponents. Uh, in fact, there's a center at, at Oxford University, uh, devoted to sort of unpacking or reimagining death as an engineering problem, right? That, that death is, is, is simply the next problem that we can technically tackle. And, um, you know, we can, we can talk about that, but I think this is, the, the kind of attitude that, um, Kaylee's here describing that Illich would have 
um, found so, so deeply problematic. But Kayla goes on to say the constantly reiterated figure of people battling diseases evinces the same attitude. Death likewise loses its significance as something that belongs to me as my last act, right? Indeed, it cannot be understood as an act at all. And, and here, I think he's playing off of Illich's uh, understanding this is a performance of there being a kind of art to suffering. When it, so it can't be understood that in that way at all when it is undergone by a patient, someone who, as the word says, is acted upon. Death cannot retain its meaning as life's complement and completion when it is seen only as the loss of a battle or the termination of treatment. And so it's the reframing of the meaning of the, not only the human body, but what the human body undergoes, uh, particularly suffering. And then one last, what I'll do is I'll read the, the penultimate quote, pause there for discussion, and we'll come back to the last uh, quote at the end of our, our time. But this last one is Illich in Limits to Medicine. The medicalization of pain has fostered a, hytrophy, a hypertrophy of just one of these modes of dealing with pain. And, and that what he's saying is that there are various cultural modes of dealing with pain, right? But, but that when in, in modern medical, uh, the medical profession has, has basically just augmented one of them to the diminishment of the others. So, and this mode is management by technique. And he has, and he goes on to say, and reinforce the decay of others, of other modes of, of dealing with pain or with suffering. Above all, it has rendered either incomprehensible or shocking the idea that skill in the art of suffering might be the most effective and universally acceptable way of dealing with pain. Medicalization deprives any culture of the integration of its program for dealing with pain. And, and again, he's pointing to the various ways in which cultures have given us models of what it means to suffer. And in his view, the, the argument he develops is that these models, these, these ways of Framing our own experience of undergoing it in the midst of a community, um, whether it is in the Christian tradition or other religious traditions, uh, historically, they have, in his view, served more effectively, uh, in many regards to help human beings experience or, or negotiate the, the pain that they undergo than the limitation of this to merely uh, management by technique, right, or the medicalization of pain. Um, so let me pause there. And clearly, you know, I think, I mean, it's all every time Illich, uh, you know, all of these books really do go at the heart of, of values that we take for granted, especially as, as modern Western subjects. Um, and especially since modern um, w- I think Western modernity takes as one of its great triumphs, uh, its assault on suffering. Um, and so I'm curious, very curious to hear how all of this rings to you or what your thoughts are here. It's tricky to think about how, um, to think about death from a Christian worldview. Um, because I also sometimes hear, as I heard recently, a kind of a pushback on speaking too positively of death and like death is a consequence of the fall and and the bible says the last enemy that will be defeated is death and i don't know what the right balance is um 
in like at this like there is kind of a hubris of of trying to of what the medical system does but at the same time treating death as glorious i'm not sure is the right christian response which is not literally what he's doing here just presenting extremes yeah yeah i mean any thoughts on that from any others So as you were speaking, I actually, I started to feel angry and frustrated. Uh, and the reason was that a lot of what Illich is saying are things I've been thinking about for a few years now, actually. Um, and I've become angry about things like when people only want to remove suffering and don't want to learn to deal with it. Um, or when they... Well, I, I'm around people who are often not Christians or who are not religious and they sort of, they sort of just run to medicine and, um, painkillers to deal with problems. Um, or if there's an emotionally, they kind of like, yes, there are psychiatric needs and there are psychological needs, but that's when there's an actual imbalance. Um, but we don't deal with our suffering per se as in trying to answer the questions of suffering and why it just is and it has something that has to be gotten rid of um and so it's never been satisfactory for me um particularly so this is something that's kind of close to home someone in our department died i think it was last semester who not of covid not someone who was elderly someone who was i think two or three years older than me working in it she died with her basically at her desk face down. And the response was immediately, you all need counseling. Um, <laughs> and there was a counselor who came for our department. Um, but even just talking about it with each other was sort of shoved off. There's one student who tried to, get people together and say, this is awful. We need to talk about this. And she also was one of the only other Christians I knew about in the biology department. I don't know who else is one, but she's someone who I knew about. Um, and so I came to support and I noticed like right when I showed up, someone immediate, some before more people could come, someone was already saying, I'm not sure we should do this because we don't have a counselor with us. And I thought, are you kidding me? Can you not talk yeah. about this at all? Um, so I, there, eventually there was a counselor. Frankly, the counselor really wasn't that helpful. Um, that was at another meeting um, because she, she didn't know anything about the situation. It wasn't close to her. Um, it was group counseling on Zoom. So we're all floating faces and it's awkward. Um, and no one really wants to speak. And what it took was for us to just voluntarily speak. Um, and frankly, I think that was, that's what my, um, colleague was trying to do in the first place. Um, so things like that, that's mental health. But other than that, um, things like seeing coronavirus as something to ultimately eliminate and eradicate uh, for the good of all humanity, which is not wrong necessarily. But it's like seeing it as seeing it as something that we just need to fight and that we need to destroy, and that's how we will make good and make everything better. Uh, 
didn't seem the right response to me. For me, it was more, I thought about, we shouldn't try to have our gusto about fighting the virus. Uh, Let's instead accept the humility that we are weak, fleshy beings that are doomed to die, basically. Um, Mm -hmm. But for me, I have hope with that still because of my relationship with Jesus Christ. And for me, I can accept that, um, knowing that the Lord is working all things out for his good or for the good of those who will, who love him. But then to, it just felt like so much was dismissed with coronavirus and so much was ignored, uh, even to the point where like it was so important that you could not visit your loved ones when they were dying. Like, anyway, I'll stop yeah. there. But yeah. that, yeah, that was, those were the sorts of things that came to mind for me. I mean, David, that, that, thank you for sharing this. That, that, that first example you give of, of, of whoever it was that comes to you and says, no, you know, we shouldn't be doing this because, the, you know, the counselor isn't here. I, I can't honestly think of a, a, a clear example of the sort of thing that Illich was taking to task in each of these works where, where we, we lose the capacity to care for ourselves and we have to defer to a certified expert who will come and guide us through this practice because we can't be trusted to do it ourselves. And it's not just that it's it, what's interesting in the case, I think, as I understood what you were describing, it's not so much that somebody in an official capacity came and said, no, you can't do this. It's that somebody voluntarily said, we, we shouldn't be doing this because we're not. So in other words, they had internalized that sense of incapacity, right. Of being incapacitated uh, and saying that we, we need to wait for for the, the right professional to guide us through this. Um, I mean, I mean, my goodness, right? That this is, I mean, that's that's exactly the kind of thing you know we've, we've been talking about more abstractly, but that's an extremely concrete case of uh, of this. Um, and I, you know, I think you're right. You know, there's been a, a contingent within um, you know, Illich's uh, um, living sort of colleagues and friends, uh, Kaylee specifically, who's written a couple of times about um, in a, what, what he called an Illichian perspective on on the virus back in, in April of last year, I think. Um, and and it's gone in, some elements of that, you know, have been a little bit, um, not what I would necessarily be able to commend, but the exploration of, of the sort of thing you're talking about, like, I, I think what it, it comes down to maybe, um, as I've thought about this is, is the recognition that um, this is not merely a scientific question, right? Um, that there there are moral and also political considerations in, in the handling of um, this virus and its social consequences, and the ability to sort of negotiate risk, um, the kind of risk that we're willing to uh, accept personally, which is of course complicated by the fact that we're not sort of isolated beings here, but, you know, my sort of willingness to accept risk may, uh, you know, can, you know, lead to, to others, uh, having to accept risk that they haven't, you know, willingly uh, agreed to accept. Um, but that all, that there was a kind of weighing of moral goods that was involved here. I think very quickly sort of got, um, at least on, <laughs> You know, this became politicized, of course, right? So that added a another vector that corrupted the whole public discussion about how we respond to this appropriately. Uh, but anyway, suffice it to say that I think I, I recognize what you're you're suggesting here that there there was a a kind of a, a deference, a way of approaching and thinking about the problem 
that I think certainly illustrates some of what um, Illich is talking about here. Um, and there was one other thing that you said, David, I'm sorry, I was trying to hold on to three things um, as you were talking. Uh, right now, the third is slipping, but uh, yeah, no, thank you. I mean, that's, um, yeah, very much on point. Thank you for that. Yeah. And other than that, I, I do see suffering as an art too. Like, insofar, so I did martial arts. Insofar as I'll call um, the judge my master, um, I think of Jesus Christ as the master of suffering. And so, yeah, just a, another right, right, that. yeah. I, I think it was, oh, David, that, that makes me think of what, what you were describing. It reminded me again of, of why I, I put the, 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 um, the Babel story before us at the start of this, right? It, it has struck me, it, it's long, long before I read Illich, um, there was this interesting dynamic that had struck me is that, that suffering in, in thinking about, about the religious life, Suffering is very often sort of the objection, right, that comes up. Right? Why would a good God allow suffering? This is sort of the, it's framed up as the problem of evil. But in many respects, it's really the problem of suffering. Um, because it's human suffering is sort of raised up as an occasion to doubt God, doubt the goodness of God, doubt the existence of God, etc. And And what's, what has struck me about this is that this is a, a relatively modern Objection, the, the, the shape it has taken, the force that it has taken. So, so there's this interesting paradox that the more we have alleviated suffering, uh, the more suffering has become an objection uh, to the religious life or uh, our belief in God. And when you read um, the way in which, you know, if I if I read sort of in my own tradition, the work of John Calvin, say, and his description of suffering and its role in the Christian life, it's, it's, it comes out of a different world than the way that even contemporary Christians talk about suffering or understand suffering, right? Um, because I think in large measure, we have assumed the modern perspective on this, that, that it is something that is only, um, it is a problem to be fixed. And it's that question of control too. I think part of what the virus I wrote uh, an essay on this uh, at the beginning of the pandemic that you know, the virus freaks us out because it questions our narrative of control, right? It shows us that, that we cannot, in fact, manage the world the way we think we can. Um, and we've placed all of our hope in management, right? Not in, you know, as Illich says in, in uh, you know, the essay on, on the rebirth of Epimethean man, it, it, we, we, we don't have hope, we have planning. Uh, hope is in a person, right, or in a community, or in what can be promised, not in what can be planned and managed. Um, and, and the kind of virus sort of showed us that that um, we can't live that way, right? Um, and so it, it kind of freaked us out, I think, at a, a very deep level uh, in the modern West. Um, anyway, all of that, yes, good, good reflections. Um, I wonder if anybody has any going back to Dax's comment. Um, and, and we have a, a few minutes left here. And, and because I, I do think that there is this, what, you know, what Dax brought up, I think is important, right? So in, in the, in the tradition of the New Testament, uh, death is an enemy, right? It is not a, um, it is not itself a good, even if it may be in our current sort of position in, in the history of redemption from a Christian theological perspective. Uh, it is, um, what we are called to. Right. Even if we don't necessarily celebrate it as being good in and of itself. Um, in other words, it has a kind of proportionality, which might say, 
to our present circumstances, our present situation, uh, and that to seek to eradicate it, to make it a problem to overcome, is again this attempt to live completely, altogether, apart from God or, or, or the grace of God. And so it's a it's a an effort again to build up. It, it's a sort of babble instinct or this babble aspiration, babblesque aspiration. Um, let me put the last quote on the table for us, and then we'll wrap up with whatever uh, conversation discussion that will yield. But I, I certainly don't want to let it go. Let this go without reading this. Um, this is from an, uh, a short essay Village wrote, I think in the late eighties or early nineties, maybe it was a, it was a lecture actually that he gave, uh, called Brave New Biocracy, healthcare from the womb to the tomb. Um, he says there, when the Lord announced to Martha, I am life, he did not say, I am a life. He says, I am life to court. This life has its historical roots in the revelation that one human person, Jesus, is also God. This one life is the substance of Martha's faith. In the Christian tradition, we hope to receive this life as a gift, and we hope to share it. We know that this life was given to us on the cross, and we cannot seek it except via, except on the via crucis, the way of the cross. This life is gratuitous, beyond and above having been born and living. But as Augustine and Luther constantly stress, it is a gift without which being alive would be dust. Um, and and Illich, uh, at this point later in his in his uh, writing, uh, took great issue with the way we sort of I, I make an idol of the idea of life in the abstraction as an abstraction. But in any case, I, I think that that again reminds us of some of the theological underpinnings um, in the way that Illich. Um, thought about these questions. And I also found it curious that the Roman Catholic priest cited Luther uh, favorably, but that's just a passing footnote. Um, okay. So final thoughts, comments, questions with the, with the minister so that we have left here. Yeah. I'll just real quick. It's part of it is clarification, but like this last quote, right? Physical life and spiritual life, right? I know they're not separate. Um, Plus, like, is the death defeated? And as we hear quoted in scripture, I feel like that's referring more to spiritual life. Like, are the end, like our, our bodies, we aren't going to death, which is separation from God. Um, I don't know if I'm wrong in that, but I also think that just makes it very difficult, which what Illich is doing, right? Is trying to, how do you bring that conception to, a society that isn't going to base its view on a spiritual death in life, um, like assessment, you know? There is also a component um, scripturally of defeat of physical death in the final mm-hmm. resurrection. Right. And uh, yeah, we're given new bodies and so that mm-hmm, nothing dies again. Yeah. Any, any thoughts on that? I mean, this is in part why, you know, I raised earlier the, the, the query whether, um, it was possible to, to ground this understanding of an art of suffering outside of a religious tradition that created the context for thinking about. I, I mean, I, I guess in, in theory it is possible, right? You know, I think of, um, of stoicism maybe as an example of this, um, 
Although even that is, is not quite, uh, you know, it's not a religious, it's not a metaphysical, I should say, right? There is this idea of a natural order, right? A, a universal moral order that is, even if it's not personal, um, you know, grounded in, in, a, in, a, in a living personal God, it is nonetheless sort of a metaphysical um, understanding of reality that you're conforming to this larger moral order. So I guess even there, there's something uh, that's not quite materialist, um, fully materialist. Um, so, so maybe it's not just that you need, you know, a, a God as in the, you know, um, Abrahamic faiths. Um, you know, certainly in Buddhist traditions or again in, in the Stoic traditions, you have an alternative framing of this, but there's still some, something that is not, you know, just re- reduced to uh, a materialist understanding of, um, of the human being or, or the world we inhabit. Um, it is interesting that you bring up Stoicism and uh, Buddhism, actually, um, because I've heard, so I was listening to a podcast um, about, uh, there are two people who were talking about what, how they deal with uh, stress and how they deal with basically existentialism. Um, and their answer was Zen Buddhism and Stoicism to think in a similar way. Mm-hmm. Um, and that was basically to do, to accept that there's nothing they can do. Um, and to take, uh, so just to do things that make them happy and not necessarily like, um, not necessarily like being hedonists, but more like just, um, or not necessarily pleasure, but how do I say it? Like, yeah, to alleviate the doom and gloom, I guess. Mm-hmm. Um, things like going out and watching the stars. So healthy things, long-term happiness. Yeah, sure. Right, right. Um, and what struck me was about it was that it's not, it doesn't actually answer the question of suffering. Yeah. It just accepts suffering. Right, um, right. And then from that acceptance, you just do little things to... um almost dismiss it which is weird because the whole idea is to accept suffering but doing the small things that make you mm. just make you happy is just mm. to basically to get by yeah um and i i always wondered about that if, yeah. yeah how how those who follow those um philosophies um how they how they think about that yeah in particular but, but there is, a, nonetheless, some effort to not simply medicalize it, um, suffering. Yeah. I, I don't want to let this close, of course, without recognizing a couple of things. One, um, uh, illich wasn't against medicine, period, right? Or any treatment of suffering. Uh, you know, I mentioned earlier, uh, to his use of, of non-refined heroin to kind of deal with the pain that, that he, remember from his biography, brief sketch of his biography earlier, um, for the last 20 years of his life, he, he dealt with an ever-growing um, growth that was located on his jaw and became ex- extremely painful, from what I understand, towards the tail end of, of his life. Um, but he's, he sought never to treat that, uh, but but he did have a hernia treated uh, earlier in, in his life. And he did speak of these two watersheds, right? This first watershed in medicine is where um, some very simple uh, remedies and, and very simple knowledge end up making... Uh, 
you know, the human condition more bearable, right? Um, and uh, interestingly, a lot of those had very little to do with what we think of as sort of medicine. They had to do with sort of changing environmental conditions, uh, providing for clean water, say, um, you know, washing hands. Um, you know, they were, they were simple interventions um, that, that did improve, you know, one's quality of life, we might say, although I'm not, I'm not sure how, how well you think of that line. Um, but so, so it's not that, you know, we simply sort of refuse all medical treatment or all, um, all attempts to sort of alleviate or manage our pain. Uh, Illich also did acupuncture. Um, had a funny anecdote. His friend Dan Grego told me about, uh, where he accompanied him to an acupuncturist session and, and the acupuncturist didn't show up. And so Illich just sort of directed him <laughs> as to where to insert the needles. And, and he went on to do that very, very uh, trepidatiously, but he did it. Um, but, but yeah, there, there are ways of, uh, of, of, of managing with pain. But, but what, it, what struck me is that, um, we, we have lost any capacity to assign meaning to our suffering, which certainly strikes me to be very, it strikes me as being very much at odds with how, um, certainly, certainly within the Christian tradition, which is the one I can speak to, uh, with some level of confidence, I think encourages us to, to understand, um, suffering. Actually, I do um, appreciate that framing of it as, is not like it's good, but it has meaning is yeah. in being in the context of the greater story that God's doing. Right. Right. Yeah. Yeah. I've always found that really helpful that I may not understand what suffering uh, accomplishes uh, in my own life, but I'm told that I can share in the sufferings of Christ and scripture. Mm-hmm. And when I look at what Christ accomplished through his suffering, the salvation of the world, there's no question that there's great value in that. So um, yeah. it, just knowing that helps put it into a perspective that uh, we'll have to wait and see what what all is wrought by human suffering. Yeah. Okay. Thank you, Tim. All right. And, uh, yeah, thank you all for this conversation on what, what is, you know, uh, manifestly it can be a, a delicate subject. Um so we have we have two sessions remaining. Um, we will talk about um, two of well Ilja's last book, uh, which is in the Vineyard of the Text, which is going to be a very different sort of book than the ones we have been discussing. Uh, and then uh, Rivers North of the Future. Uh, so we'll look forward to that. And um, yeah, thank you all for joining us. Have a good week. <laughs>